Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. Hash browns is toast, baking a block of feta with tomatoes and pasta in one dish, putting cottage cheese in everything. These are just some ideas from cooking videos that have proliferated over social media. We'll talk about whether these viral clips have made us better cooks and hear from you. But first, yesterday, 10 Antioch and Pittsburgh police personnel were arrested following sweeping FBI raids. This, the result of an 18-month investigation. The U.S. attorney issued four indictments, including civil rights violations, among other charges. That's all coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. Yesterday, federal prosecutors unveiled four indictments against 10 Antioch and Pittsburgh police officers and personnel. The charges include fraud, steroid distribution, obstruction of justice, and civil rights violations. These indictments follow an 18-month investigation, which uncovered racist, homophobic, and violent text messages sent and received by officers, messages in which they bragged about using force against the city's residents. At yesterday's press conference, U.S. Attorney Ismail Ramsey had this to say. Police officers take an oath. The indictments unsealed today paint a picture of officers who have violated that oath. When this happens, the damage done to the public trust cannot easily be calculated. This office, however, will not rest until all persons who engage in this sort of behavior are apprehended and prosecuted. Well, here to catch us up on this story is Nate Gartrell. He's a reporter covering courts for the Bay Area News Group. Welcome back to Forum, Nate. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, Nate, can you remind us how this investigation began? So back in early 2022, um, the FBI and Contra Costa DA got a tip that there were some officers who were engaging in basically a college degree fraud scandal where they were allegedly paying somebody to uh, take uh, tests and attend online classes in their names so they could get uh, certain college degrees that basically give you incentive pay in both Antioch and Pittsburgh. Like, you know, if, if you're an officer and you get advanced degrees, then they pay you more money annually. So they were paying small amounts of money to earn more from their salaries with uh, degrees that they, they didn't really earn. Um, at the same time, uh, in 2021, there was an incident where an Antioch officer who had also worked for Pittsburgh previously uh, allegedly 
interfered with a wiretap investigation uh, involving an Oakland gang that was uh, suspected of murders and attempted murders. And um, during the course of, of this college degree fraud investigation, they found connections with that incident. And they also, um, when they seized everybody's phone, um, found evidence of civil rights violations and the steroid distribution stuff and, and other crimes that were uh, allegedly taking place. So it basically started with this relatively small tip and then snowballed into something much bigger. Mm. And who was arrested yesterday? Um, so yesterday, the uh, the FBI led a series of raids really around the country because there was one officer in Texas and one officer in uh, Hawaii who got arrested too. Most of them were in California, and it was a total of um, you know ten people who were who were brought in and you know had to had to stand in court i think eight of them had their appearances in in um oakland yesterday and the thing to me that was um really jarring is you know they treated these guys just like any other suspects they they came out to their house and swat team style you know um type of force and and you know were yelling on the bullhorn to come out one of the officers uh, appeared in court with ripped clothes and bloody hands and knees and uh, it looked like he'd kind of been roughed up a little bit. So, you know, usually when police get charged, they send you a letter and they say, hey, excuse me, you have a court date on such and such day. And they really didn't do that here. It was it was it was, you know, obviously different. Um, I don't even think they did that uh, when they when they charged uh, police with manslaughter in, in the East Bay and in, in police shootings uh, in, in recent memory. So, you know, very. uh very eye-opening and, and and sort of a very stark, obvious difference there in, in how these guys were treated. And I think the, the FBI was doing risk assessment, and they were worried that some of these officers would be violent when the time came to arrest them. But I also think they were sending a message. Mm. Were the officers who were arrested, were they currently working on the force? Had they been suspended or had they retired? So um, some of them had retired or resigned. Um, a lot of them were on administrative leave. Uh, the city of Antioch is claiming that I think only two or three were still technically employed, which I haven't really fact-checked that yet, and I don't believe it. And <laughs> to me, it seems like a lot of these, you know, there, there's a lot of downplaying going on right now because the city of Pittsburgh uh, put out a press release yesterday saying that Two of their former officers were uh, charged and, and issued a response to that, which was actually, uh, you know, way more than two. So uh, I think people are trying to to distance themselves from from these officers now. But the fact is that, um, you know, in Antioch, many of these guys stayed on leave for over a year. It was unpaid leave, but still leave. They're still technically taking up police officer slots for, um, you know, the bulk of this investigation. And from what I've heard, there was kind of this expectation amongst a lot of officers that they would be cleared and that they would get their jobs back. And that denial kind of slowly eroded as more and more details of this investigation came out. Well, as we talked about in the introduction, there there are four indictments um, with various charges. What allegations are made against which particular officers? Are they all accused of the same thing? No, there's actually only one officer, I believe, who's on more than one indictment. And basically, uh, there's one indictment just for one officer. That's uh, Tim Manley Williams, who's accused of interfering with the aforementioned wiretap investigation. 
Um, there's a steroid distribution uh, indictment. There's the college degree one, which is the biggest indictment, has the most officers on it. And then there's the civil rights indictment, which is three officers who had text messages on their phones where they were discussing really like pre-planned violence against people. You know, here's what we're going to do to someone today. Here's how we justify it. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's it's pretty shocking because they're, they're talking about, you know, we're going to bite somebody today. We're going to use our, our less lethal gun on somebody today. And they don't know what incidents they're going to be using them on. Uh, sometimes they say, hey, if you see so-and-so, do, do such and such to them, that kind of thing. But it seems like almost like a, a quota or something where they were, you know, deciding that they were going to be violent with somebody, you know, before their day even started. Well, those text messages were deeply shocking. And they're the source also of a state investigation. Is that right? There's so many different investigations <laughs> right now. Um, you've got a a major multi-thousand case review that's being done by both the Contra Costa DA and the public defender's office uh, out here. And what it's looking at is how many cases should be thrown out based on, you know, officers' dishonesty and or racism. So you have that going on. And like I said, potentially thousands of cases in the mix. Then you have a, a civil rights probe into Antioch led by the California Attorney General, which um, if it goes the way of a lot of similar probes, it will ultimately lead to, you know, reforms and regulations and maybe even oversight being forced on the city's police department. Um, then you have a federal lawsuit that was filed by the offices of John Burris. It's kind of this major civil rights action that is seeking federal oversight, kind of in a similar vein as what's happened in, in Oakland for a really long time now. So all those things are converging. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, this criminal investigation isn't over yet. And I think that there's still a, a pretty good chance that more officers who weren't arrested or named yesterday are going to face state charges for kind of lesser offenses that they might have committed. So a major step yesterday, but definitely not not the end. What are you hearing from members of the community about all these investigations? What's what's the reaction been in Antioch and Pittsburgh? Well, Antioch historically has been a pretty pro-law enforcement place, and that's kind of changed in recent years. It's It's a lot more evenly split in terms of people who want police reform and people who are adamantly against it, that kind of thing. I don't think there's a uniform opinion out there in Antioch, but I do think that the overwhelming majority feel betrayed by these officers. And, you know, it's really upsetting. I mean, even, you know, when this text message scandal came out, there was uh, text referring to to the mayor. And I we reached out to the, to the mayor, who, who's black, and was referred to in a racist way. And um, I was kind of expecting him to say some kind of political message because he's he's usually pretty on message but he kind of broke down for a moment and had this this thing where he said you know hey i've had these guys you know drive by my house when i my daughter was home alone things like that and i think he just felt like a really deep sense of betrayal that these you know you know how how can you how can you not trust your own police force in, in the city where you're the mayor kind of thing so i think that's being felt you know throughout the community and and also, uh, you know, there's been a lot of people in the city of Antioch who've been raising alarm bells uh, about the police force for years. And I don't really think that a lot of that was followed up or paid attention to the, the way it should have been. 
Well, what happens to the Antioch police force right now? I mean, it seems like there's a matter of the trust issues that you mentioned, and that was Mayor Lamar Thorpe had raised, but also the fact that maybe they're really understaffed. Well, they are really understaffed because there's dozens of officers who were on leave because they are either sending or receiving and not doing anything about it, racist or homophobic texts. And that investigation is still going on, too. It could result in a lot of officers being fired or disciplined. And in the meantime, you have, you know, the city at like almost like 50 percent of of the staffing levels that it is supposed to have. And, um, you know, the the chief uh, who was hired eight months ago and was supposed to be leading the reform effort just kind of abruptly quit the other day. So now you have somebody who's a lieutenant who was already an acting captain because a lot of the captains are retiring or announcing that they're leaving too. So you, you now have an acting lieutenant or a, a lieutenant acting as a captain who's now the acting chief. And that's who they, they replaced uh, Chief Ford with. And Ford was kind of going on an apology tour around town. He was kind of taking some steps to try and rebuild the community trust. And I, you know, right now it's, it's barely better than a, than a rudderless ship because I don't I don't see how they can quickly find a replacement who's going to want the job. And in the meantime, they, they're kind of stuck with this sort of uh, patchwork situation of, of who's in charge of the department. Well, so now that these officers have been arrested, are they in jail right now? No, uh, every there's there's still an open question. The two who are out of state, they might be in custody because sometimes, uh, you know, I, it's something I still need to explore, basically. Mm-hmm. But the eight who appeared in court yesterday they were all released on a hundred thousand dollar bond uh, bond, and um, there was a a couple uh, attorneys who tried to fight that, but the judge really wasn't having it. She's like, "You guys got to put a property or, or or money if you want to uh, if you want to get out of jail." And then the the attorneys stopped trying. So everybody, it, it, all those guys, if they break a rule, they're, they they got a hundred thousand yeah. dollar price to pay, wow. but they're out. Well, it's certainly a story that we'll be continuing to follow. Um, we've been talking with Nate Gartrell. He's a reporter covering courts for the Bay Area News Group. We've been ta- talking about yesterday's FBI raids and indictments of members of the Antioch and Pittsburgh Police Departments. Thanks so much, Nate, for all your reporting. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Magical. We'll, we'll be right back to talk about how social media is changing the way we cook. All that after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. There was a time when every time I opened TikTok, someone was plopping a block of feta, a handful of cherry tomatoes and garlic into a baking dish, and then swirling in some pasta. So viral was this video, TikTokers claimed it caused a feta shortage in Finland, where the trend started. Well, that's never been verified, but what is true is that TikTok and social media are influencing the way we cook perhaps for the better, perhaps for the worst. To talk about this, I'm joined by food writer Alicia Kennedy. Her most recent piece for Vox is titled, The Biggest Names in Food Are Just Regular People on TikTok. Welcome to Forum, Alicia. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and also Joanne Molinaro is with us. You might know her better as the Korean vegan. Molinaro published the Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. Welcome, Joanne. Hi, Grace. It's so glad to I'm so glad to be here. I'm glad to, that you're here too. And finally, we've got Darlene Shriver. She's based in Roanoke Park and is the brains behind the Salad Lab. Welcome, Darlene. Thank you. And we want to hear from you, listeners. Have you cooked a recipe that you saw on social media? Something that you might not have cooked otherwise, but you just saw it on TikTok and you said, "I have to try that." How did that go? And also, who are some of your go-to social media sources for advice on cooking, baking, or food shopping? And of course, I do really want to know, have you ever used hash brown as toast? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum. So Alicia, I wanted to start with you. You've said that apps like TikTok and these viral videos that have been spawned, they're filling a generational gap in cooking knowledge. What did you mean by that? I mean that, you know, a lot of folks in my generation, I'm an elder millennial or younger, hadn't grown up sort of watching someone cook in the kitchen. Maybe it wasn't of interest or maybe you were both parents worked and you were relying more on takeout or convenience foods. And now we're in a moment where I think a lot of people are realizing that they do want to cook. It is a really good skill. It will lead to better tasting food. It's just some it's a really good tool to have in your toolbox, especially after experiencing the pandemic lockdown. And what TikTok is doing is with short form video sort of doing what Food Network had done, doing what our, you know, grandparents maybe had done, which is just showing you how to do it. it and it it is so easy and so simple an idea. But at the same time, you know, seeing someone sautéing, seeing someone chop, it really helps you to understand and to get those instincts and those techniques really embedded in your thinking. Well, the Alicia, the algorithm helps put these videos in front of our faces. Uh, but is what accounts for their stickiness the fact that these creators are just regular people often? I think so, because there's a lot of pressure on people about cooking, about eating and food and, and all of this. And so when you're seeing someone in a kitchen that looks like yours, who might be your neighbor, who might resemble your friends, it makes it seem like, oh, this is something I can do, too. They're not in a test kitchen. They're not in a professional, you know, soundstage. They're just in a regular home kitchen, propping up their phone. At most, they have a little tripod probably, and they're just taking the pressure off. They're showing you can do this too after work. You can do this too on the weekend. Do a little food prep, make something a bit more interesting or something out of your wheelhouse. And I think that taking that pressure off of people when it comes to the kitchen is such a huge reason that TikTok has taken off for food. 
Now, I want to bring Joanne Molinaro into the conversation. Joanne, the Korean vegan site that you have, it has 3 million TikTok followers, which is incredible. And when you began posting these cooking videos, what were your goals? Were you were you trying to bridge a generational gap or did you have something else in mind? No, nothing as highfalutin as bridging <laughs> generational gaps, Grace, I can tell you that. You know, I, I was listening to what Alicia was saying and I I think that there's also something to be said about being part of a trend, being, you know, like when when the wave is going around at a sports event, you you stand up together with it and you do the wave. And and there's something really exciting about that. And I think that's what gripped me when I first posted my very first very ugly <laughs> food video of Kamja Jodim, which was a recipe from my cookbook. I wasn't doing it to try and make a point or even to really teach anyone how to make braised potato. I had just seen other food creators on TikTok doing something similar, and I wanted to participate in that sort of conversation, if you will, this conversation around these are the kinds of food that I grew up. If you want to try making it, here you go. But you don't have to. I'm just telling you what I'm going to eat today. And I think that was a very organic way of not just consuming content on TikTok, but also participating in it in a very non-intimidating, low-lift way. Well, your videos have a particular feel to them. You cook and the lighting is a bit moody. The food is just it's a close-up of the food. And at the same time, you're telling your a life story. Let's listen to one of yours. My aunt once tried to pull her tooth out with a wrench because she was so angry. She was only half successful, so for the rest of her life, whenever she smiles, she does it with a reminder that life can sometimes be a bit of a bitch, but so can she. Out of all my emos, she is the one who looks most like me. DNA, chipmunk cheeks, and long eyelashes. Emo once told me she often cries in the bathroom with her dog, and I've never related to anything more in my entire life. So here you're telling a story about your aunt. And at the same time, you're making a kimchi noodle soup on the video. It sort of mimics what might happen if you're cooking in the kitchen with family, right? You're just cooking and you're telling a story at the same time. How did you come up with this um, kind of framework? Well, I love that description because that's exactly right. And it's not coincidental that I think these types of food talk videos took off during a pandemic when we were no longer able to take for granted that somebody would be standing in the kitchen with us as we were cooking, that we would be able to share a glass of wine while we were prepping our feta pasta and talk (laughs) about, you know, this is what I did at work today. Oh, I, I, I saw the funniest thing on television, or I heard the strangest story in the news, or even, you know what, I'm having a tough day and I'm thinking about something that I remembered about my aunt. And those are the kinds of stories I wanted to recreate on my TikTok. You can find the recipe for these things on a blog, on a YouTube video, or any number of other places in a cookbook. But sometimes what you can't replicate in these types of situations is that conversation, that sort of fellowship that precedes a meal or even occurs during a meal. And that's what I was trying to recreate with the TikTok videos. Well, you certainly get that feel from them. And they're great. Darlene, I wanted to bring you in. You're the brains behind this viral Salad Lab account. And I'm just going to tell the listeners, Darlene is in the studio. She brought me a salad. I'm so (laughs) excited. But for you, it was family, specifically your daughter, who was the inspiration for starting your account. Yes, she um, had asked me for my recipes during COVID. And a girlfriend said, why don't you throw them on TikTok? She's always on TikTok anyway. So when I started out, um, 
I was in my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I just grabbed some ramekins and threw a salad together, thinking that just her and maybe a couple college roommates were going to see the videos. And it just took off. Well, and um, for you, unfortunately, you lost your family recipes in the fires. So you were kind of recreating that cultural kind of patrimony by making these TikTok videos. Yes. Um, yeah, I had just kept them in a binder and we lost everything. So um, it, that was a way, a fun way of um, recreating them for her. For, for somebody who's not seen your videos, describe the vibe for us. What did they look like? Well, she is... Um, a molecular bio major. So um, <laughs> I decided a couple weeks into it that I would make it a science theme. And I got beakers and test tubes and Petri dishes. And I prepared the ingredients and put them in there. And then um, we had a, a, a family heirloom old wooden salad bowl. And I had just happened to find one. Um, and so that was the base and the centerpiece of the salad. And, uh, yeah, I used the equipment, and people loved it. Well, it's all very incredibly organized <laughs> when you look at the videos. We're talking about how TikTok, Instagram, and social media are changing the way we cook. We're joined by food writer Alicia Kennedy. Her most recent piece for Vox is titled, The Biggest Names in Food Are Just Regular People on TikTok. Also, Joanne Molinara, who is the Korean vegan. She's published the book, The Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. And also Darlene Shriver. She's based in Roanoke Park and is the brains behind The Salad Lab. And we want to hear from you. Have you cooked a recipe that you saw on social media? And what's the weirdest thing you cooked after seeing something on social media? Was anything a great success? Or definitely share your huge flops. And we'd love to hear if you've had any go-to sources for advice on cooking, baking, or food shopping um, from TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and the like. So give us a call now. It's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. We have a listener who writes, my mom made sliders from TikTok. They were terrific. And Kelly writes, I look at recipes and cooking tips online, both in web form and videos on YouTube. I avoid TikTok. I primarily primarily look for tips on how best to use the ninja food all in one cooker, <laughs> which pressure cooks, air fries, broils, sautés, etc. And the ninja hot cold blender, which actually cooks raw food and turns it into soup. Louise at the Salted Pepper has lots of good tips, as do others. I most often look at recipes and modify it to suit my tastes. Alicia, that's kind of people looking online and just being inspired by what they're seeing. That's kind of making it a little bit more bringing democracy to the food video movement. Do you think? I think so. I think that, you know, there there is a time and place for the professional test kitchen. There is a time and place for the professional recipe developer. But we have seen over time this constant coming back to learning from your peers or being inspired by folks who remind you of you or are just have ingredients on hand that you also always have on hand. And, you know, going to food blogs, going to YouTube and being like, hey, how are people cooking this thing that I have a lot of, which right now might be zucchini, might be tomatoes, and trying to find something new to do with it? You know, that's that's really a, a democratic mode of of bringing inspiration to people. And I, I think it's just kind of hit a, a hyperdrive now with TikTok because it is so accessible. It is so, you know, popular. And 
yeah, but we're all kind of just looking around and, and trying to find inspiration. And, you know, I one thing I really do enjoy about TikTok and the For You page is that you might be inspired without looking for inspiration. You might just see someone doing an onion tart, which has happened to me, mm. and be like, you know what, I'm going to go in the kitchen, make a caramelized onion tart. That's what I have around and that'll be an easy lunch. And so it's it's really an interesting kind of vibe, I think, for food. Well, I think I call this time of year the tomato apocalypse because I just there are just tomatoes everywhere, and I have friends trying to palm off their tomatoes and zucchini to me. I'm like, I don't want any more. Um, let's go to the phones. We've got Levi from San Jose joining us. Hey, Levi, welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks for having me. What are you using for um, inspiration these days? Well, I would uh, just wanted to comment about how I have definitely switched over to TikTok for all of my recipe searching and ingredient information uh, after hearing about Gen Z using Google less and less for all of their searches. Uh, and I really love how I can search for an ingredient on TikTok. And it's like a visual search engine. And it's just immediately video and audio comes up explaining, detailing how to use an ingredient and then, you know, recipes uh, featuring it. Um, and then I just also want to shout out some of my favorite food creators. Uh, I made a, an incredible lemon olive cake by Carolina Gellin. Uh, I'm excited to get uh, Dan Pelosi's, uh, a.k.a. Grossy Pelosi's cookbook uh, that I already ordered, um, and some other people like Hayden Haas, uh, and, and, of course, the Salad Lab. So, yeah, love TikTok, uh, for food. I like that shout out. Well, good luck with your cooking this weekend, and thanks for calling, Levi. Yeah, Levi mentioned something, which is like finding a recipe based on a particular ingredient. And I know cottage cheese had a moment earlier this year, and it's kind of a cottage, uh, a viral trend of putting cottage cheese in anything. So I, like, let's hear a quick video of somebody who's included cottage cheese. I'm honestly ashamed to share this recipe, but uh, I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's cottage cheese edible cookie dough in a blender, pound of cottage cheese, some maple syrup, vanilla, puree that up until smooth into a bowl with vanilla protein powder and almond flour. We're going to stir that up and then throw in some chocolate chips. And this is already ready to shove into your mouth. Well, cottage cheese, apple, cookie dough. I, what do you think, Joanne, about these videos that are kind of based on an ingredient, uh, taking it in a different direction and then go super viral? I think there's a reason they go super viral, and part of it is the nostalgia that's often tied to these types of ingredients. I mean, I'm staunchly Gen X, and so I might be a little bit older than the average demographic, but I dare say there are probably lots of people who maybe hated to eat cottage cheese when they were little or was forced to eat it as the healthy alternative. And now we have creators who are kind of turning that up on its head and saying, actually, and I loved how this particular creator or phrased it. I'm a little ashamed to share this <laughs> recipe. And I think there's something so relatable about that sort of confessional style of, okay, I have this like super secret, like somewhat shameful recipe, but let's all make it together. <laughs> And so the virality of this recipe isn't just about the ease of the recipe or this particular fun ingredient, but I think kind of this very collective experience of many, many people, probably people who aren't, you know, going to be using gourmet cheeses to make their foods, but are very, very keen on this idea of turning something that might have been not fun into something really, really fun. 
Well, we're getting lots of recommendations from our listeners. Kenna on Discord writes, Lately, I'm delighted by a cooking video maker named Kimono Mom, whose videos are often hijacked by her mini-me slash young daughter. I'm riveted by this tiny child who, one, cracks eggs with more cool-headed certainty than I ever will, and two, contains the entirety of my charisma in her pinky nail. Um, I will definitely be looking for that. And Elizabeth writes... I have to put in a vote for a YouTube series produced by English Heritage, The Victorian Way. The videos feature Mrs. Crocombe, a cook at a grand English estate, making roly-poly pudding trifle, uh, roly-poly pudding, a trifle, pigeon pie, and other dishes for the household. I did make a recipe for macaroni and cheese, which turned out very well. Uh, Darlene, is in your website, which is about salads, do you find that comfort food factors into what you the recipes that you make? I mean, not maybe not everybody thinks of salad as a comfort food. <laughs> yeah, well, potato salad. I oh, mean, there you go. There you, you can't go. get more comfort than that. Yeah, and um, everybody has a different way of making it, and so um, does yours include raisins? No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, for your website or for your site, what's one of the most popular recipes? Um, Caesar salads are probably the most popular. And then celebrity salads. Uh, of course, the Kardashian salads are uh, some of the most popular viral ones. And um, everything in between. Watermelon is a really popular one. And um, I think a trend last year was people, of course, add feta to everything, including yes. watermelon salad. Oh. So that was kind of a new thing for me. Um, I had had mint with watermelon, but never uh, feta cheese. Well, I think after the break, we're going to have to go into Well, actually, tell me right now, what is in a Kardashian salad? Um, well, the big trending one that they always shake is just lettuce, carrots, uh chicken breast and uh, some cucumbers and a very light dressing. Is it tasty? It's it's if everything's good and fresh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good to know, good to know. Um well Enid writes, at 55 years old, I learned to finally cook and enjoy doing it because of TikTok. With ADHD, it's been amazing for me. It inspires me. I see how they do it and I can easily follow. More importantly, I get to scroll for whatever my craving kids have, uh, whatever craving my kids have, find it and voila. Thanks for this show. It really makes me feel good to know my secret isn't necessarily a secret. We're talking about TikTok, Instagram and social media and how they're changing the way we cook. We're joined by Joanne Molinaro, the Korean vegan, Darlene Shriver, the brains behind Salad Lab, and Alicia Kennedy, a food writer whose most recent piece is The Biggest Names in Food Are Just Regular People on TikTok. Of course, we want to hear from you. Have you cooked a recipe that you saw on social media? And what was the weirdest thing you cooked after seeing it on social media? We want your successes, your flops, your go-to sources. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or email us your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, or Instagram at KQED Forum. More after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Madrigal. Today we're talking about cooking videos on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, other social media. We're going deep on cloud bread, Dollar Tree menus, and hash brown as toast. I'm joined by Darlene Shriver, the creator of Salad Lab, which has 2.7 million followers on TikTok. She's also local. Uh, Alicia Kennedy, a food writer whose most recent article on Vox is the biggest names for food in food are just regular people on TikTok. She's also the author of No Meat Required. And Joanne Molinaro, also known as the Korean vegan, who has a cookbook, The Korean Vegan Cookbook. Let's go back to the phones. Caitlin and Milpitas, welcome to Forum. Hi, good morning. Oh, thanks for joining us. What's your inspiration? Uh, So I originally started cooking when Pinterest blew up while I was in high school. That was my main source. But one day a friend brought over lobster tails, and I had no idea what to do with them, how to cook them, how to even get the meat out of the tail in the first place. They were just raw tails. Uh, So like Levi said earlier, when I found out that Gen Z has been using TikTok as a Google search engine, um, I decided to do the same. And I found videos on how to properly open the tails and to cook them. And so since then, anytime I have an issue about chopping an onion a certain way or opening bell peppers a certain way or certain meats, I always go to TikTok to visually see how to best open it to get the most produce and less scrap. Oh, that's like, I mean, it's and great to use. I, yeah, it's great to use that. It's great to use that as a way to learn and um, so fun. So I, I hope you continue to eat lots of lobster, Caitlin. Uh, Alicia, as you note in your piece, I mean, th- these videos are teaching people how to do things. And the food content creators on uh, apps like TikTok, they differ from professional recipe makers or folks like Ina Garten or Food Network chefs. They're, those people are selling mastery and perfection. And on TikTok, you're selling immediacy and everydayness. Right. And you'll see it, too, with people sharing grocery hauls, which is another really interesting component of the, you know, the vulnerability, the intimacy, the storytelling that one gets on a TikTok food creator versus in more traditional forms of food media, because you're you're going to see what's going in their pantry. You're seeing how often they grocery shop. You're seeing how much they're spending at places like Costco and Aldi and Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. And so it's also it's not just about teaching people those skills like look up what to do with lobster tail, look up how to chop an onion, you know, find a good recipe for a Caesar salad wrap. It's also like how do how does a person who cooks the kind of food I want to cook shop every week? Where are they going? How much are they spending? And can I compare that to what I'm doing, too? And I think that that's just another aspect of the intimacy and vulnerability that TikTok is giving to viewers that that's really, really interesting. Well, let's go back to the phones. We have Natasha from Vancouver. Natasha, welcome to Forum. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, I just wanted to share a TikTok fail. Um, so my husband and I try TikTok videos about once a week for cooking, and we've had some wonderful hits and some laughable misses and some <laughs> good laughs along the way. But anyways, the one was the Werther's Caramel Popcorn. 
the video or the TikTok looks so easy. It looks so tasty and delicious. You take a whole bunch of bags of the hard Werther's uh, caramels, melt it down at the same time as you've got the car- uh, kernels, popcorn kernels in the pan, and you heat it up and you put a big pot over it, and it's supposed to come out in this beautiful, sweet caramel mess. Um, but ours was just a, a hard clump of unpopped kernels that set off the fire alarm. <laughs> Oh my gosh. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I hope you didn't break a tooth. <laughs> it wasn't even edible. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for calling, Natasha, and I hope that inspires some of our listeners. Call in with your fails. We're, we're here for everything. Um, we have a listener who writes, As the youngest daughter in a Mexican-American family, I wasn't expected to help out much in the kitchen. I didn't really learn to cook until I was in my 20s, starting with lots of hours of Food Network. Now, most of my Instagram feed is made up of cooking videos from Marcelo Valadoid, Isabel Eats, Patty Jinich, plant-based on a budget, and Cocinera and Proceso. I have made recipes like banana cream, iced coffee, shrimp and garlic sauce, tangerine sorbet, and green enchiladas from scratch. I get lots of inspirations, especially for using more veggies in my meal. Uh, Joanne, your take is vegan, and this listener writes about having more vegetables in their meal. Do you think that the specificity of your site, you know, being vegan and Korean food that is also vegan, has helped bring in um, viewers and followers? I think so. I mean, it's always hard to say. I will say that I believe that the majority of my followers on TikTok are not vegan. I think that many of them are like this listener who describes just wanting to incorporate more vegetables into their diet, but do it in a way that's perhaps a little bit more interesting than what's offered at their local grocery store or at the fast food restaurant that they typically go to. And, you know, a lot of people are interested in Korean cuisine right now because they, you know, maybe like BTS or they watch Korean dramas and they want to recreate what they see on their television screen, but they want to do it in a way that perhaps a little bit more health conscious or, like I said, incorporates more vegetables. So I think that at least my channel has a community that's sort of thriving with people from all walks of life, all ages, you know, all different kinds of backgrounds who eat a lot of different kinds of food, but enjoy, oh, wow, you know what? This woman knows how to use gochujang and she's doing it in a lot of different ways. I may not be vegan. I may not even be vegetarian, but I like gochujang or she's making kimchi and kimchi is really popular because fermented foods are really popular. So I think that you know, the name, the Korean vegan, it says a lot. There's a lot of information packed into that. And I've been very fortunate to have built a community that is composed of a lot of different people who are just interested in eating really delicious food. One of the complaints about TikTok, and I'm seeing a lot of listener comments about this, is that the recipes have smash cuts. They just just go by so fast. It's almost impossible to understand, one, how to cook it, and two, what the ingredients are, what the quantities are. And I mean, we pulled another clip. Um, It's it sort of has a bro element to it. And that kind of suggests, like how fast these these clips go by. So let's listen to that. These are Asian zing wings. Can we make a chicken wing sandwich? No. Let's season down the buttermilk. And now we marinate. Until we lose patience. For our dry batter. 
It's time to get lost in the sauce. We need to turn this operation healthy. Sesame seeds, cause we're fancy. And now we have final product. And as always, now bismillah. That's oh, actually so crazy. I told you not everything has to be a sandwich. That was the golden balance on TikTok. And you can just hear from that what's ha it's happening really, really fast. And Joanne is somebody who is, you're, you're not talking about the recipes themselves, but I know you, when you transferred to TikTok, you struggled with, how am I possibly going to explain how to make this dish in 60 seconds? I did struggle with that. And there are people like the Golden Balance is actually a good friend of mine who's really, really good at it. And he also does longer videos on other platforms that do go into a little bit more detail so it doesn't feel so frantic and chaotic. And I think that for people who enjoy that style of video, I'd be very curious to see if they're actually watching those videos to really learn how to make these dishes. I think there's something very mesmerizing, hypnotic, and there's this sort of ASMR quality and the rhythmic nature of these videos that sort of draws people in and makes them like watch like 30 of them in a row because it's just so meditative. But for me, I was thinking like, well, I do want to impart some information. I don't just want it to be audibly and visually appealing. I, I want to tell people something. And I did think that it would be a little bit misleading in certain situations for me to try and pack in an entire recipe, just like, you know, Natasha described with that Werther's Originals popcorn fiasco. <laughs> there is probably a lot missing that, you know, made it onto the editing floor of this video that would have been incredibly useful for consumers to know when making this popcorn, but it couldn't be fit into a viral video. And so instead of trying to share recipes all the time, I still do, but instead of doing that all the time, I said, why not? use that time, 45 to 60 seconds, to share something that might be just as valuable but isn't a recipe, like a story or a conversation. And these are the types of videos that many people have enjoyed on my channel. It's also spawned a genre of videos. I mean, I think you were one of the first people I saw doing it. And I know you, you're you careful not to say that I'm the first or I'm the pioneer <laughs> of that. But it is kind of one of those types of videos that you see a lot of now. And I think that's really beautiful. And I think that speaks to a need that people have, again, partially born out of a phase in our generation that was unprecedented of isolation and loneliness, but also something that speaks to the sustainability of storytelling and its impact on the you know, human narrative. Hmm. Darlene, I wanted to talk about the, the technical aspects of putting these videos together. It looks pretty simple. Your website, uh, your your clips are a salad bowl and then you putting in carefully measured ingredients. But I know it takes a lot of time to make it look that good. Tell us a bit about that process. Um, it's basically chopping vegetables <laughs> and, and just some sauteing a protein or um, roasting some tofu or whatever it is. Um, and personally, I grew up watching Jacques Pepin and people like that. And I felt that I saw a lot of videos of people chopping onions. And I did not want to be that person that chopped the onions. And like she said, I, we only have a, a minute, basically, to demonstrate a whole recipe. So I thought it would be better to see the finished product chopped than show them actually how to chop the, and the different slices and, and Julian and all that. So um, 
and it's people seem to love it. Again, like she said, it's uh, some people find it therapeutic. Some people comment, "I'll never make this, but I love watching your videos." <laughs> um, so yeah, they have a good time, and um, I. I guess I'm not the only one that enjoys making a salad. Well, I mean, for your videos, too, I think it requires a very good manicure, which you always seem to have. <laughs> that, that is the one side benefit is I have to go get a manicure every once in a while. Um, a listener writes, I wonder if there's a potential downside to cooking instruction being consumed in this way with the endless stream of short, highly edited and attention-grabbing content where amateurs create perfect dishes in seconds. It might create the impression that everything in the kitchen should be quick and easy and that it's not e- if it's not easy for you, you're doing something wrong. The most helpful advice I got in the kitchen was to slow down, take my time, and practice over and over without being discouraged if something doesn't turn out right the first time. Alicia, that's kind of the million-dollar question here with these videos and what got us interested in this um, segment in the first place. Are these videos making us better cooks? I think it depends on what you're bringing to it and whether that's the outcome you want. You know, if you're going into looking at TikTok food videos saying, I want to learn how to do something a little bit better and you're watching the videos that are going to get you there, then sure, it might make you a better cook. If you're kind of watching casually and thinking that you can walk into the kitchen and just whip up, you know, the most perfect roast chicken you've ever made just by watching one video once that was a minute long, then maybe the outcome is not going to be as as positive and fabulous for you. But I think it's just it's all about what you're trying to get take away from it. And I think that if you're looking at these videos, you're scrolling your for you page and you're kind of going with the flow of it and taking taking what you can and, and leaving behind what you don't doesn't serve you. I think that, you know, it's a good it's a good way to do it. What do you think, Joanne? Are these are videos like yours helping people become better cooks? Are they expanding palates? I definitely think they're expanding palates because, you know, you mentioned the sort of democratization of the kitchen and of cooking. And with that means that people are now having access to ingredients and flavors, flavor combinations that they may not have access to. And I don't mean just physical access, but mental access that they were never introduced to these flavors and combinations. And wow, thanks to this amazing algorithm and a proliferation of content, they can now do that. And, And then all they have is their imagination to contend with when it comes to creating something beautiful in the kitchen. That said, you know, I go back to how I learned to cook and it was a very, you know, food networky based situation. I just watched endless and endless videos of people on the food network and then topped that off with Mangchi videos on YouTube. <laughs> so, I mean, in the aggregate, hours and I and I mean hundreds, if not thousands of hours of videos, that did make me a better cook. So theoretically, yes, I think, again, in the aggregate, you know, whether it's through TikTok videos or YouTube shorts or Instagram reels, these short form content, what they do is they inspire you to learn more. They inspire you to be inventive and to try things you might not otherwise. And in that case, I do believe that in the aggregate, we are all going to be made better cooks as a result of that. Well, we're coming to the end of our hour, and I I don't think I can let you leave without telling me, each of you, what you're going to be cooking this weekend. Uh, Darlene, I wanted to start with you. What's on the menu at the Solid Lab? Um, I'm going to do an arugula stone fruit halloumi salad. 
ooh, is the is the halloumi going to be baked? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> oh, that sounds really delicious and inspiring. Alicia Kennedy, do you have anything on your on the books for what you might be cooking this weekend? I'm probably going to barbecue some marinated tofu and and put some pita in the uni. Ooh, that sounds delicious. A little uni. Um, I kind of like that. And um, Joanne, what's on the menu at the Korean Vegan? You know what? My father was here very recently, and so I have thus been craving jajangmyeon, Ooh, <laughs> the uh, Chinese-Korean hybrid noodle dish, uh, ever since he left. And I think that's definitely going to be on the menu this weekend. Well, tell us, a, for people who don't know what that dish is, describe it a little bit for us. Yeah, so it's Chinese noodles, and they are smothered in a delicious, glossy, molasses-like gravy made of fermented soybeans and soy sauce and mushrooms and onions and zucchini and, of course, my favorite, the potato. So it's it's probably my top five favorite dish in the entire world. It's the cover of my cookbook for a reason. Well, I, I can attest that is a delicious dish, and I've definitely had it. There's so much sodium in it. I definitely, my face got inflated after. <laughs> It's worth it. It's worth it. It's totally worth it. It is absolutely so delicious. Well, this has just been the most fun. And we've been talking about how TikTok and Instagram and social media are changing the way we cook. We've been joined by the food writer Alicia Kennedy. She wrote the recent piece on Vox titled, The Biggest Names in Food Are Just Regular People on TikTok. And Joanne Molinaro, who's the Korean vegan, and she has a cookbook, The Korean Vegan Cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Alma's Kitchen, and also Darlene Shriver, based in Roanoke Park and the brains behind the Salad Lab. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. Thank you. That was thank you. A lot of fun. Um, the 9 O'Clock Hour of Forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Juan Carlos Lara, and me, Grace Juan. Our interns are Jericho Reiniger and Amiko Oda. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer, and Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Judy Campbell is the lead producer, and our engineers are Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovid Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. So I asked our all of our guests to tell us what they are be, they will be cooking this weekend. I think I will be making one of the salads on the Salad Lab. I kind of am addicted to the green goddess salad that um, Darlene has put out there. So if you're looking, check that out. Also check out the Korean Vegan. There's a kimchi jjigae, which is a kimchi soup on there, which is pure comfort and full of absolute flavor. It's not to be missed. Um, So I'm Grace Wan, in for Alexis Magical. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody, and stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.